Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. And I invite you to turn in your copies of the scriptures to the book of Exodus, chapter 12. In a moment, we'll read the next half of chapter 12. We've been in chapter 12 for a while, studying the Passover. Now we come to the second half. How good it is today to dwell together, be together, come together as God's people who are bound not only to Christ, but also bound to his word, what his word would tell us, what his word says to us, that our God is always trustworthy and true. So would you stand with me together as we read his word from Exodus chapter 12, beginning in verse 29 through the end of the chapter. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up! Go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks, on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds, and they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. 
The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron And on that very day, the Lord brought out the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We are those of flesh who wither and fade away, but your word is eternal. It never fades away. And so, Lord, I pray that you would illumine our minds and hearts with your word, because we, your servants, are listening. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever felt like you were trapped? Do you perhaps feel like you are trapped right now? Like someone who is lost in a maze, you keep running into dead end after dead end after dead end, and now you stand at a crossroads wondering, have I been here before? You're desperately searching to find a way out. Surrounded on every side, you might be willing to look at the sky and say, God, show me how to get out of this. Why does someone experience desperation? Why might you be experiencing desperation right now? It's because you and I, no one in this world, are in a neutral state. Rather, there are those who are in a state of suffering. Some are in a state of oppression. Some are in a state of misery and even perhaps mourning. And while we would think, well, that's, 
people out there. That's not us in here. No, that could very well be us in here as well. Maybe you're asking the question that the psalmist cries out to God in Psalm 43 when he says, why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? The word that the psalmist uses there for mourning is a very descriptive word. It speaks of one who walks in darkness. That's the description that he uses of being in mourning. It appears that God has rejected him. It appears as if God has forgotten him, left him behind. And so he cries out, Is there a way, O Lord, is there a way out of this darkness? Out of the oppression that has been placed upon us because of our enemies, because of the enemy? Is there a way out of the misery that is like a burden upon our backs that we are unable to remove? What does the psalmist then plead for in the very next verse, Psalm 43.3? He says, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Ah, that is what we need. God's light and God's truth to lead us out. And he does not merely show us a way out. He leads us in the way out. And when he leads us out, where does he lead us? He leads us to himself. The Lord leads us to himself. God leads us to God. This is what was happening in the book of Exodus. This is what happens in the life of everyone whom the Lord saves. The Lord leads us to himself. God was leading the people out of Israel. He was giving them the way out. How desperate was their condition? So dire that later Moses would call Egypt an iron furnace. So Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 20 says this. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace of Egypt. Do you realize that that was the state that the Israelites were in? It was like they were in an iron furnace. It's like the oppression and the hardship and the suffering was so bad, it was almost as if they were being burned alive. And it was an iron furnace because this iron furnace was designating its strength. They were trapped. There was no way out. They couldn't break through the iron. And so we are in the same state as the Israelites in an iron furnace. What an awful state. No way to break through the iron. No way out. We are trapped. And while Israel's slavery was very real and very physical, Our slavery is no no less real and no less physical even though it is a spiritual slavery to sin and death. Yet the Lord leads us out. This is the Exodus. And so what we read about this morning is what we've been waiting for. We've been waiting for anticipating the way out. When is God going to free his people? When is he going to bring them out of Egypt? And we see that in our text this morning. 
And so with Israel's exit, we also see our way out and how God accomplishes this in our lives. And so how does this way out happen? This way out happens in three ways this morning. Number one, you can follow along in your bulletin if that's helpful. But number one, our way out happens with the defeat of God's enemies. Our way out happens with the defeat of God's enemies. Here is some good news this morning. When God defeats his enemies, it is devastating, it is decisive, and it is humiliating. And we wouldn't want it any other way. When God defeats his enemies, we want it to be devastating, we want it to be decisive, and we want it to be humiliating because we want God to be glorified. And all those who are opposed to God, all those who are against God, all those who are enemies of God, they do not want God to be glorified. They want God to be stripped of his glory. And so when God defeats his enemies, he gets all of the glory. And so let us not forget who we're talking about. These are the enemies of a holy and righteous God. These are those who have rebelled against him, who have shook their fist against him, who have remained in their sinful ways. And not just remained in their sinful ways, they reveled in it. They have sought to worship the creature rather than the creator. They have exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They have worshipped and elevated those things that are in the likeness of man or created beast. They have not worshipped the creator God who is deserving of all worship. And so God strikes them in a way that's devastating, divisive, and humiliating. And we see this in our text. Yahweh follows through with what he said he would do. Look at verse 29. At midnight, or in the middle of the night, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. This is the way out. The way out is through death. And the death of the firstborn plagued the whole land of Egypt. It was either the death of a lamb for the Israelites, or it was the death of the firstborn for the Egyptians. It was the death of the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, the one who considered himself to be a god and deity in Egypt. He could not even keep his own son alive, his firstborn son alive. He could not keep alive the heir to his throne, the one who was in the image of Pharaoh himself. And so this so-called deity experienced death. There was no escape for him, just as there was no escape for the captive who was in the dungeon. Literally, it's the one who is in the pit. And so from the throne in Egypt, 
the highest of high, the most elevated person, to the lowest of low, the slave, the captive in the dungeon, to all of the livestock, and all in between, they experience the curse of death. And the, then the Lord heaps upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians insult to injury. The humiliation begins, and it begins with Pharaoh rising up in the middle of the night. We might not think much of that, but that is not an action that's associated with royalty. Kings don't wake up in the middle of the night. They're too good for that. The commoner wakes up in the middle of the night, sure, but not kings. They don't wake up. They don't get roused from their sleep. And so Pharaoh is humiliated by having to rise up in the middle of the night with the death of his firstborn. God had attacked Pharaoh's royal succession plan, and God had prevailed. He crushed the very throne of Egypt. He brought to ruin the planned future of Egypt. And the death was so extensive that it touched every house in the land of Egypt. There was not a house, it says there, among the Egyptians where there was not somebody who had died, where there was not someone who was dead. There was not a house left untouched by death. Pharaoh, his servants, all of the Egyptians experienced it. And what was the result? A great cry, a great cry of anguish and mourning rises up from the Egyptians. In Exodus 3, 7, when Yahweh the Lord met Moses on the mountain, he said to Moses, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. The Lord God said, I have heard the cry of my people and I've come to rescue them and I've come to save them. And now what is it? The cry has been reversed. It's a great cry coming out of the Egyptians. Those who had once caused God's people to cry out in anguish. Now they, they are the ones who are experiencing such anguish, such misery, and they cry out. Decisive and devastating. Pharaoh, however, is humiliated yet again in verse 31. He summons Moses and Aaron into his presence. Do you remember what Pharaoh had already said to Moses and Aaron? He said this in chapter 10, verse 28 of Exodus. Pharaoh said to Moses and Aaron, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, what? You shall die. That's what Pharaoh had said to Moses and Aaron. And now what's happening? Now Pharaoh, who has the death strike in his own heart, is forced to call back Moses and Aaron into his presence where they will stand and they will live. God has made good on his warnings Pharaoh is humbled and he cannot make good on his promises. And oh, dear brother and sister, rejoice, rejoice in this, rejoice that our enemy Satan is stripped of his power to make good on the threats that he would hurl at us. 
rejoice that the world is rendered powerless to do anything to us of any eternal consequence. Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rejoice that the promises of sin and death are empty and unable to conquer those whose faith is in Jesus Christ. Just as Pharaoh could not make good on his promises, so the enemies that are ours cannot make good on their promises against us. We have no reason to fear them. Pharaoh, who had said, the next time you see me, you will die, is forced to call them back into his presence where they then walk away alive. How humiliating. But Pharaoh's humiliation is not done yet. There is an urgency in his voice when he says to them, Up, go, get out. And these words that, that Pharaoh speaks become very telling because look at what he says here Up, go, out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel. Those words, people of Israel, is the proper name for God's people. The sons of Israel is what it says there. And this is the first time that Pharaoh utters their name. This is the first time that he calls them Israel. So he is having to recognize the identity of these people. These people aren't his people. These are the sons of Israel. These are people who are distinct and what do these people do? They serve the Lord. Again, Pharaoh uses the proper name of the Lord, Yahweh. He says, go and serve the Lord. They no longer serve him. They no longer have to follow his rules and what he says. They are not to serve Pharaoh, but these are the people who serve the Lord. How humiliating that Pharaoh has to say, they no longer serve me, they serve the Lord. And so go, go serve the Lord. Whatever power Pharaoh thought he had, he comes to recognize he has no power. These are not his people. And they are not to serve him. Humiliating, yet even more humiliating. Verse 32, take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone. And then what does he say? Bless me also. Put in a good word to Yahweh for me, Moses and Pharaoh, or Moses and Aaron. Here it is that Pharaoh has to make one last request. He is seeking a blessing even after he has been defeated. He is looking for some blessing after the awful curse of death was experienced of his firstborn in his own household. He would have to ask for a blessing. He was not the one who gave the blessing. He needed the blessing. Do you realize how humiliating that is? When Pharaoh thinks, I'm the one who gives the blessing. I'm the one who is to be served. 
I'm the one who is in control. I'm the one who says who are my people and who aren't my people. I will decide when I get up and when I lie down. And the Lord in one foul swoop says, you are nothing. You will be humiliated in the dust, Pharaoh. Not only is Pharaoh humiliated, but the Egyptians experienced this humiliating defeat as well. It says here in verse 33, the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. Interesting, that word, urgent, is the same word that's sometimes used of Pharaoh's heart. When it says that Pharaoh's heart is heavy or Pharaoh's heart is hardened. And there's some irony that's being played at here. Here, these people under Pharaoh, whose heart had been so hardened and heavy that he was determined not to let them go. He was saying, no way. I am so stubborn. I am so determined. I will not let God's people go. Now, it's the opposite. They are determined to get the people out. They need to leave. And they need to leave in haste. Why? For they said, we shall all be dead. Or another way we could say that in a more continuous and present way is, we are all dying. If Moses and Aaron and the Israelites don't leave, we're all going to be dead. Our firstborn are already dead. The firstborn of our livestock are already dead. If they don't leave, it's everybody. And so they were urgent They wanted them to get away from them because they realized the curse of death had fallen upon them and that the only way they thought to get away from that curse of death was to get the Israelites out of their land. Finally, they were so utterly defeated and humiliated, the Egyptians were willing to give their silver and gold jewelry and their clothing to the Israelites as they were leaving. The Israelites did what God had told them to do. They asked the Egyptians for their jewelry and their clothing, and the Egyptians were just willing. Yes, please, I want you to leave so bad. Here, take my clothes, take my jewelry, everything that shows my wealth, everything that shows how prosperous I am, please take it, just get out. What point? How bad would you have to want someone to leave that you would be willing to do that? How defeated would you be? You would say, here, take my money. Here, take my clothing. Here, go, leave me. Get away from me. They plundered the Egyptians. God gave them favor, or God gave them grace in the sight of the Egyptians so that they left them so that they let them have what they asked, thus they plundered the Egyptians. That shows that they were victorious. The victor, to the victor goes the spoils. And so they plundered the Egyptians because they were the ones who won. They were the victors. We think about this defeat that's come upon the enemies of God. Do we see that the same is true for all believers in Jesus Christ? Our way out happens with the defeat of God's enemies. God's enemies will not win. God's enemies will not prevail. And how do we know that God defeats his enemies? They are placed underneath Christ's feet. 
devastating, decisive, humiliating, God's enemies are placed underneath Christ's feet. They are put in subjection to Jesus. They do not rule over him. He sovereignly rules over them. And so we are confident, dear brother and sister, be confident, in the end, Jesus wins. Turn with me for a moment to 1 Corinthians 15. Hold your finger there in Exodus. But 1 Corinthians 15, verse 25 and following. There's talking about Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 25 through 28. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And then look at it, verse 26. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is expected who put all things in subjection under him are accepted. He is accepted who put all things in subjection under him when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to, him, subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that what? God may be all in all. Do you realize that God's defeat of his enemies is devastating, is decisive, and is humiliating? And that is seen plainly and clearly in the empty tomb. If the last enemy to be defeated is death, what does it say about death when death can't keep Christ dead? That is the whole job of death. The whole job, death, your job is to keep Christ dead. And death couldn't do it. Death didn't have the power to do it. Death didn't have what it needed to keep Christ dead. It was devastating, it was decisive, and it was humiliating. Christ defeats death because Christ is alive. And how humiliating because we then all partake in his resurrection. And so all of God's people who are a part of this resurrection, we are all walking signposts that say, death does not have any rule or any reign here. Death does not win. And so we have no fear of death. You want Christ's defeat of his enemies to be devastating, decisive, and humiliating. Number two, our way out happens as we depend on God's promises. Our way out happens as we depend on God's promises. The next section in our text records this exodus. Here it begins with this journey from Ramses to Sukkoth. And it says that there are about 600,000 men on foot. 600,000 men besides women and children. Some commentators suggest that there could have been up to two or three million people who left Egypt that day. 
The truth is we don't have an exact count. It looks like even this 600,000 number is a round number, not a precise number. And so how many left Egypt that day? 600,000 plus. We're also told that it was a mixed multitude. What are we to make of this? It wasn't just Israelites who left. There were others from different nations or places who went out with Israel on that day. And oh, what a day it was. It had been a long day coming. A day that had been promised all the way back in Genesis 15. There, God was making a covenant with Abraham. There, Abraham had cut all of the animals in half. There, he had created that bloody path between those animals. There it was that God caused caused Abraham to fall into a deep sleep. It says that dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And then God spoke. This is what he said to Abram. And the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. That was the promise that God had made all the way back in Genesis 15 to Abraham. And here we see the Lord keep the promise that he made. His offspring were sojourning in a foreign land as servants under a harsh taskmaster. They were afflicted for 400 years. And now it had been 400 years, 430 years to be exact. And on that very day, the Lord brought his people out of the land of Egypt. All the hosts, it says, of the Lord came out. That word hosts calls to mind this idea of an army. So what was the Lord doing? He was bringing his army out of Egypt. Do you know that the Lord's army hadn't so much as lifted a sword to come out? Hadn't so much as fought or done anything. All they had done was kill the lamb. Spread the, spread the blood on the lintel and doorposts. That's all that they had done. And so Yahweh keeps his promise. You can depend upon his promise. You must depend upon them. It's because God keeps his promises that we know that there is a way out of our enslavement to sin and death. And this event has brought us to what we read now in verses 42, or verse 42 in particular. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout all the generations. The Passover was to be a night of watching kept to the Lord From generation to generation, they were to remember this. And how were they to do this? Well, with the Passover meal for the Jews, they were also supposed to stay up all night. You stayed awake. 
That to remember how the Lord had cared for them on that night, this night of watching. It calls to mind what we read in the psalm, Psalm 121, verses 3 and 4. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Unlike Pharaoh, who was awakened in the middle of the night by the Lord's judgment of death upon his house, the Lord wasn't asleep. He was watching over his own. He was protecting his own. He was caring for his own. He was saving his own. Let us transport ourselves for a moment from the night of the Lord passing over those houses that had the blood on their doorposts and lintels to another night. It is the night, in the middle of the night, where we enter into a garden. The garden is called the Garden of the Oil Press, or as we might know it, the Garden of Gethsemane. See there, in the darkness of that night, our Savior, as He was greatly distressed and troubled. See Him whose soul was sorrowful even unto death, sweating drops of blood. Hear Him say to His three closest disciples, remain here and watch. Then look as He goes a little ways from them. See Him fall on His face in prostration before his father. Listen to the words of his prayer upon his lips as he says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And what does he find when he comes back? To his friends, they were sleeping. And so he confronts Simon Peter. Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. What was going on? It is the night of watching. The night of watching that coincides with the Passover. The night of watching that was to be kept by all the people of Israel. It was the night Watch where the Lord worked his salvation for his people. It was the night the Lord stayed awake. And so again it is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Our Lord stays awake in order to be prepared to do the work of salvation. And why does Jesus alone stay awake? Because it is Jesus, the Lord, who alone does the work of salvation. The apostles didn't add to the work that Jesus was about to do. They could not stay awake. Jesus stayed awake to secure our salvation. He did everything. He watched. He prayed. He suffered. He bled. He died. He rose again from the dead. He did it all, and we did nothing. Praise Him. Praise Him who stayed awake to save us and secure Secure our salvation before God the Father. Finally, number three. Our way out happens with the decree of God's plan. Our way out happens with the decree of God's plan. 
our way out happens with the decree of God's plan. In the last few verses, we come back to the institution of the Lord's Passover. And with these instructions, this is where we see the Lord make a decree. This is my plan. This is how it's supposed to work out. Here are some stipulations, some regulations that are visible reminders of how the Lord is working out His saving work. And this plan, this saving work, was for those who were a part of the covenant community that was Israel. Why do I say this? Because it was only those who bore the sign of the covenant that were to participate in the Passover. So what is it? What is that marker that they look to? All those who have been circumcised. If you were circumcised, that's the covenant marker. If you've been circumcised, you may eat of the Passover. If you have not been circumcised, you may not eat of the Passover. And so they're looking forward here to this day when there will be foreigners among them, where there will be strangers in their land who sojourn among them, who might say, we want to keep the Passover with you, but they would not be permitted. They would not be allowed to keep the Passover unless they took that covenant marker upon themselves, unless they were circumcised. And then they would be permitted. Then they would be welcomed. And there was a, a transformation that happened. If they took that marker upon themselves, then it says, look at this in verse 48, he shall be as a native of the land. So he takes this marker upon himself. He's circumcised. Then he's in. Then he's like a native of the land. Then he, he's like an Israelite. Here, what a beautiful picture Another verse from the Old Testament that anticipates a day when the people of God will be one people of both Jews and Gentiles. A day when the dividing wall of hostility separating Jew and Gentile is torn down by Jesus Christ. Where he himself will now create one new man in the place of two, so making peace that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. That's Ephesians 2, verses 14 through 16. What are we to make of this? Does this have any relevance for us today? We want to talk about the fact that there are some people who are permitted to eat the Passover and some people who are not permitted to eat the Passover. Well, I think that such regulations do bear upon the church today. And it, it's verses like these that have actually been a part of the church for centuries. As they looked to how these would apply to them, and so how these also then apply to us. Because we see that as we think of the Passover and its transformation now that happens in the Lord's Supper that there is a point of contact with who is it that is allowed to participate in the Lord's Supper? Who is it that is allowed to eat the bread and drink the cup? Is it for anyone and everyone? 
No, it's for those who are a part of God's covenant community. It's for those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Now, however, the covenant sign is no longer circumcision. The covenant sign for the new covenant in Christ Jesus is baptism. It's those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus who demonstrate the work that has been done in them through baptism by being immersed in the water as a believer. It is those who have been scripturally baptized in this way who have the mark of the new covenant who are permitted to the table. So when one puts their faith and trust in Christ, baptism becomes the first act of obedience in following Christ. The public profession made showing that you have been unified with Christ in both his death and his resurrection. And now that you've been raised to walk in newness of life. And so think about this. In the New Testament, when you go to the New Testament, the New Testament knows no true believer who is not baptized. Baptism would then regularly and ordinarily precede one's participation in the Lord's Supper. You've shown this publicly, your profession of faith and being unified to Christ, and so now you picture it again through coming to the Lord's Supper. And some might take offense at this. Some might be offended that the Lord would put such barriers in place, but actually those barriers are meant to bring unity. Those barriers are meant to unify us as one, as those who are Christ's. It's to assure us of his love and his salvation for our souls. There is no assurance and there should be no assurance for the one who is separated from Christ. We cannot lie. We cannot offer that person assurance. We cannot offer security of salvation to an unbeliever. And that leads us to a bigger underlying problem in all of this. The question is not who or who not or who or who cannot participate in the Lord's Supper. The question, the bigger question, the more important question that we have to answer is this. Are you separated from Christ and lost because you are dead in your sin? Or the more apt question arising out of this text, are you trapped in the iron furnace of sin and death with no way out? There is a way out. There is a way out, though, through faith in Christ. He shows His great love through His atoning death that can forgive all of your sin and bring you into God's family. It's through His victorious resurrection that you can be certain of the gift of eternal life and what it means to live for Him and follow Him now as one united to Him. God's decree and His definite plan was for His own Son to be crucified at the hands of lawless men and then after that to raise Him from the dead. This is the one that God has made both Lord and Christ. And so now, what happens? When people are convicted of their sin, they are cut to the heart and they cry out, what shall we do? And we say what Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. 
And so this morning, if you don't know Christ, if you're separated from Him, if you're in that iron furnace, come to Christ. Call out to Him. Go to Him in faith saying, Jesus, You are the only one who can save me from my sin. You are the only one who can bring me out of this sin and misery that I'm in. You are the only one who can free me. Turn from that sin. Say, Jesus, I want to follow You and You alone. And then talk to me, talk to the other Eric elder, another leader in the church. Have you been scripturally baptized? Have you made this public profession of faith? Have you said, I am the one who's following Christ, unified to him, trusting in him? Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. I would fill that baptismal every Sunday. Every Sunday. If you haven't, please talk to me. Talk to Eric. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today, which comes to us in such a way that we not only learn, but we also are changed and transformed by it. It's the word that we need to hear. Father, and as we come to this word this morning, we say, you have given us this word for a reason. It's not by accident today that we are in this part of the book of Exodus. It's not by accident that we are talking about these things. It's because we need to hear them today. And so, Lord, may each of us look into our own hearts, into our own lives, into our own minds to see how we might be changed by these verses. And Father, if there's someone here today who does not know you, may they come to know you and put their faith and trust in you. And then look forward to following Christ and doing that first through baptism. Our hearts are filled with thankfulness, oh God, because of the gift of the word you've given to us today. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.